Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for medtech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Rook Quality System. Why Rook? Because getting a medical device to market is complex, not unlike a game of chess. There are as many moving parts as there are pieces on a chessboard. You need the perfect strategy and tactics, and that begins with your very first move. That's why at Rook, their mantra is make every move count. They may not be experts in the Queen's Gambit, but they are experts in quality and regulatory strategy for both emerging and established medical device companies. If you need to comply with regulations in domestic and international markets and time is of the essence, don't make another move without Rook. Check them out at rookqs.com. This episode of the podcast is a little bit unique in the fact that we recorded this at Boston Biomed Device Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. I had just gotten done watching a presentation by Erica Chung, who is the one of the whistleblowers from the Theranos case. And I had an opportunity to do a question and answer session where I was able to ask her questions, but we were also able to interact with the audience and have the audience ask questions. So this is the recorded version of the Q&A I did with Erica Chung. Erica is currently at ethics and entrepreneurship. She's the founder there. And in this Q&A session, we discuss her journey of being at Theranos, her journey of being a Theranos whistleblower, the importance of culture at a startup company, ethics within a startup company, why you should care about who you raise money from and how they'll influence the culture and ethics within your startup company, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Erica Chung. All right, everyone, we're going to get uh, started here. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Dwayne Mancini. I'm the CEO and managing partner of Project MedTech. Uh, also host a podcast for a living, so this is kind of right down my alley here. Um, Erica, first off, thanks for doing this. Thanks for the presentation. Um, we're going to let the audience ask questions as well, should anyone have questions. Um, I could probably fill two hours by myself uh, if I really wanted to here. But uh, the first question I had was, with early stage companies, specifically in the seed round, um, they're still proving out their technology, right? I, mean, I know your case was different, but for a lot of these companies, they're doing that. They don't have insight to what the executive team are telling the investors. Um, how do you kind of grapple with that as, a, as being in the lab, doing the research, and hey, things aren't really proven out yet? And when do you really know that line kind of gets blurred of, we're starting to communicate things we can't do. Yeah, I think I think it's we have to come up with a new model to have honest conversations about where someone is in their stage of development. I think that's really what's going to happen because I think most investors in venture they understand that there's going to be 
cases where what someone sets out to do actually looks very different than what they are going to do. And it's a really about like risk assessment with some of these things. So I think in the Theranos case, the reason why it was so bad is it's the case of going from an R&D product to actual commercialization, right? So you're just in a whole different territory of being regulated. For seed stage companies, you know, I, I, majority of investors who are investing in these companies are going to understand that what you are starting off doing is probably going to look very different than what your developed R&D product is and then what that means in terms of commercialization. But I think the key here is very simple. It's being honest with people of like, I tried to do this thing, it failed. We thought that this was possible, it's not. And even wavering those discussions of like, we think it has the capacity to do these things, but we need this, this, and this before we have some clarity on whether it's to that full capacity. Um, but I think people are scared of telling and talking about their limitations, of talking about um, where they currently stand. And I think both on the side of the founders getting comfortable with that, in addition to on the investment side, being comfortable hearing that um, is, is going to be really important to sort of prevent a situation where there are these extreme exaggerations of, of what's actually happening um, in, in their R&D phase. Great. Uh, the other thing, you talked about the COO, who's, that's Sonny, right? Yeah. Or was Sonny. Um, can you just talk about the culture of a startup and how important that is, especially from like the, the top-down approach of the executive team? I'm curious, you know, you, you talked about Sonny's experience with, with you, and, and I'm guessing what, what was like Elizabeth like from a communicating to the team perspective, and, and how important is that for, for startups? Yeah, I mean, it's super important, right? Uh, uh, in terms of the culture of an organization, at least in those early stages, it's definitely the case that the values of the founders definitely create that culture. And it's not until you start getting, like, maybe past, like, 150 employees, I think people have studied this, like, Dunbar's number or something like that, that you start to see it the case that um, the people who work for the organizations and the things that are doing start to also sort of play a role in affecting what the culture of an organization is. But I think at a minimum, you know, not having these cultures of fear and secrecy where people feel like they can't talk to management, where they feel like they can't talk to those executive talents makes it very, very difficult, particularly in the sciences where you're constantly going to be hearing hard truths about where things are at, whether you like it or not. You know, it's just the objective fact of like, where is the status of this med tech device? What are, what are the realities in terms of the environments that you're deploying? Uh, particular particular medical device, like you really need a certain level of uh, ability to have candor and hard conversations and um, transparency in a way uh, from the top and from those leaders. Uh, and it's really important at the early stages, right? Because it's so important to have good cooperation and collaboration for these very multidisciplinary, very difficult um, products that you're building. Awesome. You brought up... Uh was it Howard Schultz or, or who was the, what was the dinner that you had? Oh, Sorry. George Schultz. George Schultz. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that is sometimes difficult for startups is when you're raising capital from people who don't understand the technology or the sciences, uh, like what you described is a conversation I've had with my uncles on research I was doing, right? And, and where they don't maybe understand exactly what you're doing. How do you, how do you flirt that line of educating them, but also understanding that 
they're saying someone else is smarter and they're trusting them. And I'm just curious on the importance of educating investors on, your, on, on actually what you're working on to making sure that they have a fundamental understanding of what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, this one's a tough one. I think, I think there are two different priorities here, right? So there's educating the investors to sort of see, do they fundamentally understand the product that you're developing? That's going to be hard. That's going to be tough. I think you have to have good governance over your organization. So even if the people that you're communicating with don't necessarily understand what you're, have, uh, you're doing, you always have to maintain a certain level of responsibility of do we know what we're doing and are we acting in the best interest of the company and the stakeholders that we engage with. So even if your investors don't know what's going on, make sure that you have people surrounded around you that do, whether that's advisors, whether that's the board, whether that's some other steering committee or some sort of governance structure that you've decided to create, it's really, really crucial. Pushing those conversations with investors, like you're going to have to meet people where they are, right? And just as much as investors are, um, as much as you are courting investors, but investors are courting you, and so always thinking about that, like how do I be strategic even in the money that I take and understand that, um, you know, that is equally as important as just sort of trying to convince everyone what you're doing. It, it, you know, that's another strategy in terms of your investments to sort of look at. But it's, it's hard. You have to work with each person individually. There's no kind of... Um, you know, this is like pedagogy, right? How do you teach someone that doesn't necessarily know what you're talking about? There are different methodologies for doing that, but you have to understand who that individual is in order to accomplish that effectively. So, so staying on the investor piece, and you mentioned FOMO, right? Fear of missing out, and, and that does run through investors. We see it with all the startups we work with where once, once one check comes in, all of a sudden there's three or four more behind it, and the due diligence process that they go through all of a sudden, it's not as intense, right? So as a startup company, now you're in a different boat. Instead of really needing cash, you're in the, in the point where you can kind of pick and choose, right? You want smart money. What's that process look like from a startup perspective of due diligence on the investor to make sure, hey, this person is going to uh, act appropriately. It's going to be good money. It's not going to be bad money. Yeah. Look at their portfolios. That's very helpful. Who have they invested in before? What are the relationships with the people that they've invested for? Talk to those other portfolio companies because they'll tell you. They'll tell you the honest feedback in terms of like, this is what it's like working with this type of investor. These are the types of interactions that we've had thus far. Um, so luckily with LinkedIn and all of these different resource tools now, you can pretty much talk to anyone if you really wanted to. And you can get insight on sort of what these companies are, are what these investment uh, arms are doing and what they're investing in, who they are, what type of relationships that they have. Um, so that's super helpful. Looking and asking them who in their network that they know that they can facilitate relationships with you that are relevant to the technology that you're developing and the, or the product or service that you have is also really useful. Because again, it's like, how can you get the people around you who are going to ask those questions that's going to further, further develop building high quality services and high quality products? Um, that should be a like, key agenda item. Awesome. So for someone starting a career, you mentioned it over there, but you kind of brushed over a couple slides where it was, it was like, yeah, you decided to quit, and then all of a sudden you're reaching out, the, the Wall Street Journal's reaching out to you, right, and you're, you're doing a, uh, an article there, and you're, I'm just curious, 
I'd love to know a little bit more for someone who's just started their career, you're just getting into it, and it, you, you said it was like a truck hitting you in the face, right? There's a lot going on here. Um, what, what does that process look like? We ask CEOs what keeps them up at night, right? This had to have been like not as straightforward as you made it sound over there, right? I mean, what was the mental gymnastics that you were going through and thinking about, I'm going to quit, but now I have a duty to let the public know, let people know that what's going on isn't right. I'm just curious on any more insight into that. I mean, it's a miserable experience. <laughs> it's really sad. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's sad to just deal with the reality of like, oh, okay, I came in with these ideals. I really wanted, you know, I was very sincere in my uh, desire to create point of care diagnostics to provide affordable and accessible healthcare for people. Like this was, you know, a career that I imagined I was going to do for the next 10 years of my life. I really had that degree of um, commitment, at least to, to this industry and, and that, and, and to have that kind of uprooted uh, so starkly and to really have to reevaluate all my expectations of what I was going to do. It was hard. It was harsh. And it was really kind of, uh, jarring in a sense of like is this how everything operates because I was so young of like is this really like I can see why everyone's like going off on the fringe of all these conspiracy theories of, of all these like crazy healthcare stuff because because if that's really how it functions like that's scary um so it was very very trying I think in terms of the actual act of whistleblowing going forward even though it seems kind of Maybe, I don't know if it was I was naive. It, it was really like a breath of fresh air. Like every opportunity that I got to take another door to reveal the truth, I was taking it. And maybe I was too blinded by what the potential consequences were or whatever else. But it's just that real compulsion. Like you, this, people need to know this. Like this, this isn't okay. Like something needs to be done about it. Um, so it's weird, even though the emotional aspect of understanding that this is the way the world might work and these are the types of challenges that you're going to face and the type of people that you're going to deal with like that was sort of a hard like wake up call um the actual act of whistleblowing was very simple in my mind it did even even in my slides it really felt that linear even in my own mind of like ooh, another door now i can say something now here's a new opportunity um but yeah uh whistleblowing is very very hard it's very very hard that's why you know talking to people about preventing these types of situations has uh, sort of been a big initiative of mine because the barrier to having that happen, the effect that it has on your personal life, on your professional life, and I'm not saying only for my case, now I work for all these whistleblower advocacy groups, like it's it's a rough, a rough path. Um, and uh, it, it really is a, a sort of last resort. Um, ideally, you work for an organization that when you say something, there's going to be some sort of corrective action or investigation or, or some sort of means to actually uh, value what people are saying and, and, and doing something about it. Awesome. And, and looking back, would you have done anything differently? Any, I, I don't want to say regrets, but it's just, you know, looking back on it, is there anything you'd have done differently? No regrets. No regrets. I think that's the nice thing about being in this position, actually, is like when you stick by your own, um, uh, when you just do the right thing, at the end of the day, despite all this drama of everything that has happened, I, I get to sleep at night. I get to sleep at night. 
and and I don't have to live in a purgatory of the fact that I didn't do anything. And that piece is priceless. Like I'll take that any day. Um, in terms of things of the whistleblowing process that I would have done differently, collected more evidence. That's really big, like really having objective evidence. I think I was very scared of the NDA, of the fact that this was this sort of lording legal contract over me that was going to destroy my life. Um, if you see someone doing something illegal, you are allowed to report that. There's no, uh, the NDA has, has no power over that. And so I wish I would have known that. I would have gotten a lawyer. I didn't have a lawyer throughout this whole process. Do not recommend that at all. <laughs> yeah, it would have made my life a lot easier if I had a lawyer. Um, and uh, uh, what, what other thing? Yeah, I, I probably would have taken documents and submitted those because it would have been easier for the regulators to conduct their inspection. It would have been easier for people to understand the extent of the problems because when you're dealing with people who have an invested interest in maintaining their lies, that just, just, it just continues. It just continues. They're just going to keep lying. So it's easier if you have objective facts that people are able to observe in order to, to get a sense about what you're saying. Great. And, and you brought up something at the beginning about focusing on obstacles as an entrepreneur uh, rather than, you know, oh, this is all the good things. This is the, the grandiose vision that's going to happen. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Because I think that's an interesting thing for a lot of startups where we talk about culture and they right. really want to have a good culture within their organization. And I think sometimes there's that pressure to say, well, things are great, even though they might have two months of runway and they need a check to come in next week or they're going to have to close up shop. And I think sometimes you, we work with a lot of startups where we're trying to work with them on transparency of let them know exactly where you are. Let them live and breathe that with you. So I'm just curious if you can unpack the, the obstacles piece a little bit. Yeah, I, I found this really interesting because I'm, I'm kind of nerd out on like goal setting and different things that it, it's, it's a lot about risk mitigation, right? It's about Going into startups and going into business is inherently risky. And honestly, for healthcare and stuff, like these risks are really, they'll destroy you. So uh, being honest with yourself about what are the challenges, what are the obstacles, just makes you more prepared to face them. It's not the case that it is somehow going to destroy your ability to con like do things. And I think the issue when you're, you have to be a little masochistic, I think, to run a company sometimes because it is so painful. And that like personal line of staying positive because you need the motivation to keep going through all the painful things. And, and also just being realistic about where you're at. Like, I don't know how you, how people calibrate that line, but I think maybe that's why people go into this like extreme positivity because it is quite painful. Right? It's hard to sometimes justify not only to yourself, but to other people. So it's like we have to figure out, again, um, how to have difficult conversations, how to have honest conversations, how to understand just because you say that, you know, I'm not where I wanted to be, that doesn't mean you're not going to get where you are. It just means right now, in this moment, you are not where you need to be. Um, and, and this seems to be difficult for people in their personal lives, sort of separate from business, but then also you see it at a, a more serious scale when people run a, run a business. And it's just figuring out how to build those climates, those cultures, those teams, those, that type of candor, I think, um, within organizations that's, re that's really important. That's cool. I, I got two more questions, then I'll open up to the audience as well. Um, 
the, the, the first one, and this is just more or less like I'm trying to think about this, but they, Theranos had FDA approval, correct? Or clearance? Or they did not? No, it was, it was confusing. So, uh, no. Okay. So, essentially, how Theranos worked is they kind of worked in this regulatory gray zone. So, because Theranos was developing the devices on site where we had CLIA regulations, they were considered an LDT because they weren't distributing medical devices. So they didn't need to start getting FDA approval for anything that they didn't distribute. So the only thing that they didn't, they had to get FDA approval for was the collection devices. And so they got dinged by the FDA for that. Then they got FDA approval. Then they said that they got uh, FDA approval for one test, which was, uh, uh, this was after I left for, for herpes simplex two. And so then they got approval for that. Um, it was just like a useless test. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> sorry. Um, or is it simplex one? No, simplex one, not simplex two. It's the one that's very common. And then uh, uh, aside from that, they were kind of operating in this weird gray zone that it was a LDT. And so you only have to get approval from uh, CLIA in order for that to happen. And, and the, yeah, there was a bunch of um, strange things that were happening. There. Okay, that makes more sense because when you said that, and I've watched the documentary, but it was a while ago, and I'm thinking to myself, how did the, regula the regulators not catch any of this? Because if you've been through an FDA audit, like, they're not fun. Right. Uh, and they're very invasive. So I'm thinking to, like... How did this this green blockade thing work for for regulators? Um, I think that wraps up. Oh no, this one more question, uh, and then the audience. The rebuilding of your career. You kind of talked about it. Uh, I'd love to know just how you took this stressful, negative, hard, uh, you know, event that you had that lasted years into okay, let me, let me take what I learned here and, and rebuild my career, even though your one and only experience was crappy, right? Just trying yeah. not to swear. Um, so I'm just curious on what, what you did after that uh, and how you used those life lessons, I guess. Yeah, so I was lucky. Like, I was off the record for a really long time, so that gave me some <laughs> lead time to, to not kind of be in the public spotlight, which actually made it harder. Um, so I, I worked in the biotech industry after that, so that was easy. I luckily worked for a wonderful employer, Antibody Solutions, which was a contract research organization, taught me what good leadership was, really took care of me, understood that I was in a really rough spot. And they had inklings that something at Theranos wasn't right, but didn't really know, and so they hired me, and so I worked in biotech for a little while longer. But then after the, like, the whistleblowing and the following and all the craziness, I moved countries. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, and I'm half Hong Kongese, so I went to Hong Kong and um, I basically had a decision. I could have worked for a genetic diagnostic company or for um, a technology accelerator that I'd helped build out. I decided I wanted to understand how these financing models worked for these startups. And so I took the punt in terms of being in the VC world and just sort of run, ran with it. So it's kind of like how life happens. And it wasn't until you know, I was like five years later in my career that then Theranos sort of went into the spotlight and then sort of like threw me for a loop of now I have to re-grapple with all these things that I probably was running away from <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, 
and and so that was like a, a readjustment of of figuring out okay how do you how do you negotiate that. Um, I was also dealing with a lot of fraud cases in uh, Hong Kong as well, but more in finance. And so that's what made me launch the nonprofit is because I realized this conversation of ethics needs to be more strongly prioritized in startup spaces where it's not, it's happening in academic institutions, but it's not really happening in the places where a lot of these businesses are being launched. And so that was kind of the um, reasoning and thought process of, of sort of launching the nonprofit that there was this real big gap uh, happening um, among startup ecosystems and, and that sort of that. So I don't know what the cohesive through line is for my career, but it's I like to be useful, I like to be helpful, and if I see there's an opportunity for me to to make a difference and, and be useful, I'll, I'll take that opportunity. Awesome. Uh, are there questions? Yeah, a lot of questions. Cool. Hi, Erica. Hi. Thank you so much for your time. So I'm a founder and CEO of a um, Saliva-based home diagnostics company. And what I deal with on a regular basis is being compared to Elizabeth Holmes. And I find that investors are sort of like comparing me to her and that experience. And they keep just asking for more and more and more before even considering um, looking at everything that we're doing. So how do you think that I should manage that considering I'm not at all like Theranos. We're not doing anything close, but as soon as you talk about diagnostics, you know, we're a consumer product, but can diagnostics, I'm a woman, a founder, it's just all the lines are so blurred. I'd like to get your insights on that. Yeah. This is the like saddest unintended consequence, I think, of this, especially there's so many sad unintended consequences because, again, wanting to push forward the field of point of care diagnostics and that this was like a sort of bizarre um, uh, outcome of that. In terms of how do you manage those conversations, I mean, oh gosh, it's it's tough, right? Like it's just gonna be tough in terms of how do you change people's perception about things? It can be really difficult. Um, trying to find your allies of people who understand the space and who could maybe piggyback and uh, advocate with you, I found to be very successful. So whether that's funds that are focused on female founders and empowering female founders, whether that's funds that are specifically focused on point of care diagnostic, at home diagnostic, decentralized lab services, these types of things where they can kind of maybe not give you the investment, but give you the kind of backing to say, no, this person is sincere about what they're trying to do. You know, we back what they're trying to do. We're not able to maybe fund them for these reasons. You know, maybe, I don't know, whatever the resource is, but that can be helpful to sort of build that team of allies to give you enough, um, of the, I don't want to say necessarily credibility, but like, hey, these are people who are in the industry. These are people that vouch for us to sort of like shift that narrative. And there's sort of power in numbers and power in that community that can kind of push forward the things that you're doing. And then they also open the doors to the people that are going to be more willing to sort of support you and know. But it's but it's tough. It's a, it's a hard perception to change. It's one of the like worst unintended consequences that I think came came from this case, in my opinion, uh, among many others. But um, um, it, it'll be difficult, but find find the community of people who are willing to sort of not make that a focal point and, and are, are able to sort of back the projects that you're doing. Yeah. Erica, thank you very much. My name is Brian Dunn. So I'm Hi, Vice Brian. President of General Digital. We're over in row 500, and you're the perfect straight man for this question. 
So my company's got 30 years of independent verification and validation in the aviation industry, which seems to have a very robust history and just culture of saying this software that controls the engine on this commercial jetliner has to be validated and verified and not by us, by someone else. And we report to the FAA, and I would love to have a cultural discussion about doing that same thing for the FDA. I mean, we, we've done it with a class three medical device, but every time I bring this up, people are like, hey, that's a good idea. And then crickets. No yeah. one wants to pay for that. So like, you need someone to help vouch for you. I can't help you personally, because all I do is software. But like that culture of having an independent house, that that's what we do. We don't work for you, yes, you pay us, but I give my data to the regulator directly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that kind of cultural, independent verification validation outside of the house. Yeah, you, you see these very successful in a lot of these regulated industries, right? These sort of auditing bodies that'll come in and basically give you um, more assuredness in whatever you're doing. Like you said, for airplanes, it's very clear, right? It also has this culture of like, even the way you error report is different, right? You utilize Six Sigma, you're looking at parts per million of failures, like you do not want to see a plane crash on, on any anything. What creates that culture shift and that change of taking it as seriously for healthcare products and for diagnostics? I mean, one of them is maybe, um, I, I mean, you have to have a big value shift, right? In terms of, okay, when we're seeing the case of a lot of uh, endangerment of patients in certain areas, you know, how do we basically recorrect that? What is the corrective action? What is the policy to support that? I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I think it is interesting. You do see this as a potential channel. Um, I, I work in sort of now the healthcare space, but I also work in the ethical AI space, and this is a big conversation with ethical AI as well, is essentially can you create these auditing bodies that can sort of come in and sort of vet different technologies that are happening? So it's a very useful um, feature, but how you get people to pay for it and get people to pay for it at scale and figure out how to create the incentives on the side of either the regulators to demand that or on the companies to understand the value of it. Uh, it just it just depends, right? You have to you have to like sit down and strategize that out in terms of how that would work um, in medical devices specifically, diagnostics specifically, or all these different uh, sort of sectors of healthcare. Now. Other questions? Hi Erica and thank you. There's a question you, you partly answered, which is how does the community react to you being a whistleblower? Because you mentioned uh, at first you were not so visible, and when the whole thing exploded, you become very visible. So how does the VC community today, or the startup community today, view you? I think if the value system is about making things right, you should be like a goldmine for them, and everyone will want you. Is it the case, or is it like you creating problems for the valuation of stuff? That's interesting. So I haven't, I, I, at some point, I, I'm going to test this out. So I've, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll let you know, like you don't know uh, sort of what's going to happen until you sort of cross those bridges. Um, so off the record, you're fine, right? You just say, I had this unfortunate experience. You don't get into the details. I worked in biotech and then I could have sort of propagated my career from there. 
I would have probably had to go back to school. I only have a bachelor's in science. I don't have a PhD. So that could have been the outlet. I will give you, I tried to get back into doing COVID diagnostics, funny enough, because I was like, okay, everything's shut down. I'm running a nonprofit. Like we'll scale back our operations and I'll jump in because there's just such a need for CLAs at this point. And I talked to the CSO, I talked to the CEO of this company in my hometown. And once they figured out who I was, I didn't hear back. So I don't know why. I was definitely overqualified for this position. Sure, I'd been out of the sciences for four years, but they were hiring like mad. And so I was like, ooh, is this the first indication that you're kind of a wild card? They don't know what to do with you per se. So um, like, I don't know, we'll find out, especially if I, I start broaching more of these digital health companies or these biotech or, or healthcare companies. Um, also, if people do have a problem with what you did, they're not going to tell you, so you don't know. Like, all the feedback that I receive is generally positive, um, and, and so that's nice. Uh, I have, again, been living under a rock a little bit because of the trial, so I, I haven't been paying attention to what the community is saying because I, I needed to just focus on getting my testimony out there, maintaining the integrity of my testimony, making sure that um, I, I didn't get too confused by a bunch of different storylines of different things. Um, but we'll find out. I don't quite know, especially because I've taken such a different uh, uh, different turn in my career at the moment. Omar Ford, Editor-in-Chief of MDDI. A um, couple questions for you. Uh, I've covered this industry in this space for a very long time, and especially with the Theranos story, I don't think it was ever explained. Was the science talked about? Um, what was the science supposed to be uh, surrounding the Edison. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So there are different iterations of the Theranos product. So that's the one thing that uh, people have to understand. Um, initially, I think what they were attempting to do was almost, so there were way, way back in the day, the hope was that you would be able to do real-time monitoring. So you were able to essentially do, you know how they have those sort of, um, uh, uh, they're kind of in the arm where you can collect blood and sort of run analysis. Mm -hmm. So that's initially, I think, what she was thinking of doing is that you could have a real-time monitor with blood collection, kind of like what they do for glucose monitors in real-time glucose monitoring, but you could scale that out. And people are like, that's not possible. You can't do that for all of the different assays. So then they brought in Ian Gibbons, who had an immense amount of experience in microfluidic chips. So they were hoping to create microfluidic cartridges in order to start doing different channel diagnostics. And of course, you only have a limited range, typically for all your immunoassays that you can do in there, but at least that was a start. And then with the Edison's, it was sort of a continuation of just basically automating Eliza's. Uh, that, that was it. And it was shoddy. It was like <laughs> so bad. It was like a really impressive PhD project to make me. That's, that's what it was. But it was just automating that whole process, putting it into a, a, a reader. And eventually with the 4.0s, what they were trying to do is there was like some new technology when they were doing diagnosis for microbiology where they were doing some like real-time PCR. They had their own methodology maybe. And what they were trying to do is like come up with all these different methodologies that were miniaturized, basically utilizing these small uh, vials of blood and then just smushing it into a device and seeing if you can get all these component parts and then automate it. 
So that seemed to be the direction that things were going, but it was not working well. So it was like, okay, can we have a box, like a printer, and we can just stick a flow cytometer, a centrifuge, uh, uh, an ELISA reader, what the hell else? Uh, uh, there was like a couple other things that they were just trying to sort of smash into this. They didn't even, con like, can we do temperature controls and sensitivity? So that's eventually what it sort of became, was just this one box that miniaturized everything and tried to automate what a laboratory assistant would do and a CLS could potentially do. The most impressive thing I'd say about Theranos was the fact that they were trying to integrate all of these different data systems into the cloud and create a pretty good LIS system that would be able to run a lot of analysis. So I think that's where a lot of the interest was because you're working with all the, I mean, ideally you'd have one device that you just shoot all your data from, but they were pretty good about taking, you know, your Siemens Advia, taking a flow cytometer, of taking your uh, Edison devices and sort of aggregating that information into the cloud and then the sort of top layer um, analysis that you could potentially do that. And that was sort of her mission was, can we get into predictive diagnostics? Is it the case that now that we have people getting tested on a regular basis, uh, instead of just like once or twice a year, that you can start sort of seeing maybe if and predict certain diseases based on different biomarker status. So that was actually a pretty interesting idea. A lot of people are still trying to do this um, to a certain degree. It just wasn't there, right? Like I can throw ideas at you of all these like mat like wonderful things that I can do, but she just couldn't get it to happen because she didn't have necessarily the expertise. And there was lots of like weird things. Like even though all the scientists were the ones working on this, she always had to be first on the patent. And it's like, you're never in the lab. Why are you first on the patent? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but so, so it just kept, uh, yeah, it was like a, a bit of a like Frankensteining what you, this end, basically this end product, which was one device runs all of your lab diagnostics, miniaturized, automated. Um, and it was always attempts to go through that, even though it didn't make the most sense in a lot of cases. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And final question here. Um, as you were working with her or as you worked with Theranos, did you see her change? Because she's quite a character um, herself, you know. I mean, we've got movies, documentaries about her, um, Hulu specials. Um, did you see that? Was she almost a character as a CEO? Yeah, she, so by the time I had worked for the company, it was so late in the game that all of the videos that you see of like her very polished with the turtleneck and the like way that she, she speaks and everything, um, that was her. Any interaction you had with her, like she, she was that character, whatever that was. And the way that she would speak about the company, everything that never really changed or modified. Um, huh? The eye blinky thing, sometimes, sometimes. It, I will say, and this is what I always try and tell people, when you get in a room with these people, it, 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 that fades away. She was very, very charismatic. And I always warn people about this. There are some people in this world that are very good at saying exactly what they think you want to hear. Very good. 
and you have to pay attention to their behaviors and ideally their behaviors over time because she can work people <laughs> she can work people and even though she became this character and all these things she can become many many characters and so I always uh, warn people like you you can she, she has this way of like pulling at, at, at people's heartstrings at their emotions at being adaptable to what she perceives as someone what someone wants and um, as much as she was that character there uh, uh, she, she's very good at sort of meeting people on, on a one-on-one -on -one basis or in these small group settings and that, that shouldn't be taken for granted at all uh, yeah Erica, thank you for sharing your story and, and the courage, the courageous example you've shown all of us. Fortunately, there aren't many Theranoses in the world, right? Yeah. But I think a lot of what we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are ethical lapses at other levels, lower levels. Maybe not the CEO, maybe it's just your boss. And I'm curious about your opinion about like, how do you deal with that and what's the process? And, and ultimately, where I, I think about it, it's almost like these companies need like an ombudsman, yeah. you know, that's like independent, that can ensure there's transparency uh, throughout the organization. So I'm curious about what your thoughts are. Yeah, it, it depends, right? It, it depends on like, where the problem's happening. I think what's, what's helpful sometimes are these assessments to sort of identify where are the issues happening? What type of misconduct are we talking about? Are we talking about data integrity and product misconduct? Are we talking about behavioral issues in terms of like an HR capacity? Or are we talking about um, uh, other types of lapses that, that could be occurring. Um, sometimes these assessments work really well to sort of identify, okay, where are the problems? Where does it stem? Is it like a middle level management thing that's not being communicated well? Is it from the bottom? Is it from the top isn't sort of like articulating or, or, or pushing the sort of values and seeing that's in alignment with the actions of, of what people, do people understand what they're supposed to do when you tell them like, hey, um, we value things like honesty and transparency. How does that actually show up in my day-to-day -day work? And is that clearly articulated? Um, in terms of like reporting and what are the good structures of reporting, it depends on the size of the organization. Abudsman's programs are really good. Having policies in your organization that support people who are potential uh, people who speak out and that they're not gonna be retaliated against, they're not gonna get fired, they're not gonna get suspended, um, that they're gonna be able to maintain their jobs like if there is someone that speaks out, if it's possible to maintain their identity, make sure you look out for them that it doesn't affect their promotability is another big thing because even if it doesn't, you're like, I won't get them in trouble and fire them. Maybe their surrounding middle level management is like, well, you're not gonna be up for a promotion at the end of the day. And um, so tracking those kinds of things are really important. Highlighting cases where people spoke up and that was a benefit to the organization, and that was valued, and that was cherished. The fact someone did that um, is very helpful. And then, of course, these like external reporting lines, whether they go directly to the board, whether they're an external figure that has that expertise to really assess, you know, what type of issue are we doing? What is the best protocol to deal with these types of issues? Um, yeah. It, it, it varies on the type of organization, what types of problems that you're happening, but the ombudsman's programs seem to, to, to work quite well. Uh, whistleblowing hotlines sometimes work well as well, depending on what size your organization is. Um, and also those just like commitments and those cultural pushes of telling people, like this is important, I want you to say something, this is what saying something looks like, right? Um, that can be, be helpful too. 
of course, you're going to get people, you're going to get different personalities, different people, and, and those have to be addressed in different ways. But um, those are some of the things that we've been looking at. Yeah. Great. We have time for one more question. Yeah. Thank you, Erica. Um, I work for an organization that helps bring diversity to MedTech, so helping women and people of color. Um, do you have any advice for new students, people straight out of college getting into the MedTech world, how to navigate the space and how to speak up when they are considered the youngest and the less experienced in the room? Thank yeah. you. Um, how do you get in the MedTech space? I mean, just showing your... It, showing people you're interested, right? Getting involved in any way that you can is probably, it, it depends what level, are we talking students? Or are you talking like uh, early professionals, students? I mean, students, one of the most valuable things is doing internships, working in labs, like getting engaged in those communities and those uh, that funnel people to those positions and to those jobs. Um, there are lots of like networking communities that you can talk to to figure out what kind of research or what type of products that you're doing. Working with startups, sometimes they'll accept free help, sometimes not, not so much. Um, in terms of speaking up when you're at the workplace, I mean, w one of the things is, um, I think that's been helpful for me is understanding how to have hard conversations with people is a big one. Of, uh, you know, one, understand what is the incident <laughs> that you're talking about. Uh, when it's sort of a task-based incident, it's almost easier, right, because you have evidence. But then when it's a relational incident and like how someone's treating you or the relationship you have, that it's a little more difficult. It's gonna be a little more difficult. And when you're having those hard conversations, a framework that's really helped me is understand that when you're having that conversation, you're having a conversation about what's happening, about what that person's identity is and what having this conversation means for their identity. And then that emotional conversation of what does that emotionally stir up for them? And realizing that you're having kind of these three conversation when you're bringing up difficult things really helped me in being able to approach people when it's something particularly difficult. Um, and ideally, you have someone on the listening end that's that uh, aware of the fact that this is going to be hard, that this is these are the kind of things that are going to be brought up. But I found that really helpful because it makes people a little more grounded and a less re reactive when sort of talking about things. Um, you know, checking in with other people, finding allies is really crucial as well, where it's not just the case you go directly to say the higher person with an issue, but maybe just fact check, just, you know, in my case, it was a sanity check <laughs> with other people. And, and that can be really helpful as well. Um, and, and also know that sometimes it's not gonna work and, and, and preparing for that and, and knowing what to do in that event as well. I just want to say thanks uh, for doing this. Thanks for doing the live Q&A. Thanks for the presentation. Q&As are hard, especially when we're asking questions that you haven't prepared for. So I just want to say thank you and thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.